space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number six. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back. This week is the WBC, or World Board Gaming Championships, in Pennsylvania. So if you're taking a break between games, or driving back after WBC, I hope you have, or have had, a great time. I only ever went to one WBC that I can remember, which was when it was called AvalonCon, back in 1998. Uh, I recall running into Don Greenwood and commenting on how great the turnout was and whether they would have to move to a bigger place next year. And his response to me was, I'm not sure that there even will be an Avalon Hill game company next year. That was pretty shocking. Uh, The writing was clearly on the wall at that point, even though I couldn't read it. But Vassal was very nearly a thing then, uh, 1998, and GMT was publishing games, and we had an internet... And even though it was a huge loss to me when the company died, um, just as the loss of SPI felt like a big blow when I was in high school, I think Wargaming's future was secure even then. It's great to see how the hobby has developed so many more gatherings like GMT's Warehouse Weekend and Consum World Expo, but WBC seems to have taken the place of Origins as the convention that Wargamers have to attend if they're going to play Wargames, and I'm delighted to see it thriving. Oh, and if you're not at WBC because of work or other scheduling issues... Well, welcome to the club. So I got the chance to play Washington's War a bunch of times recently, and I was reminded of how great a game that is. Um, By the way, does anyone use the stand-up leaders? I hated them in We the People and loved the replacement counters in Washington's War, but I guess everybody has different tastes. And I tried to teach a friend of mine, Ici C'est la France. Uh, He's still on the fence about that one. I got a chance to talk to Mark Herman and Volker Runke about how to rethink your own game design, and I also got all pensive about game maps. But first, the news. We've had a couple updates from GMT Games since the last Wild Weasel, including the announcement that MBT was shipping. I'm waiting on the postman for my copy, as I love this game in its Avalon Hill incarnation, and can't wait to see how it looks 27 years later, with the advances in printing and graphic design. Fast Action Battles colon Golan 73 was charged in late May, um, but I haven't seen it yet, and it appears to have been delayed. Um, I think I saw somewhere that it's going to be till at least the end of July, but that's basically now, and I didn't see any mention of it in the last update, which arrived, um, I guess, last week. Uh, So who knows? Um, But the most interesting thing that Gene Billingsley has said, uh, which was in the update before this one, is that GMT is reaching that point where their current systems are not able to keep up with their printing and shipping demand. (laughs) Frankly, that sounds like one of the greatest things I've heard in the wargaming hobby for years. 
Um, in an interview I did with Mark Herman last year, we talked a little bit about how SBI ran into cash flow problems trying to print all the games they were producing. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that GMT has a strong demand for its games, and the pre-order system seems like insurance against running into the kind of cash flow problems that SPI had. So I hope that GMT can do whatever they need to do to get the company running smoothly again. Gene did note in that update that brisk sales of the Twilight Struggle Digital Edition have given them a cash windfall of sorts to make the upgrades they need, which, by the way, uh, seem like serious infrastructure issues, including process management and software integration. Uh, so I'm really happy to hear about that, uh, about the the cash windfall, because I think Digital Twilight Struggle is one of the best digital products I've ever bought, frankly. So, Gene, good luck. And if you need to take a month uh, off of publishing anything, you know, publishing anything at all, uh, game-wise, in order to get GMT sorted out, well, I, for one, I wouldn't mind. The reprint of A Distant Plane is shipping as well, so if you want to get a hold of the second best coin game now that it's available again, go for it. And that evaluation is without ever having played Fallen Sky, by the way, so that may change once I get that to the table. Still, A Distant Plane is a fantastic game. Upheaval in the gaming industry seems to be a thing this episode, as Victory Point Games announced that they will be leaving California for business reasons. The gist of what Alan Emmerich both said and didn't say seems to be that he needs to optimize the structure of Victory Point, mostly from a physical perspective, and California's business climate makes it a suboptimal state in which to do that. Alan, you should consider coming down here to business-friendly North Carolina, although I will warn you that we have some very strange bathrooms. Speaking of Victory Point games, the second edition of Nemo's War is very close to shipping. Even though it says war, it's not a war game, but it just happens to be one of the best solitaire games I've played in a long time, so take note of that. One Small Step Games is about to ship No Trumpets, No Drums, which is good news since I can't wait to play it. Um, they're also shipping NATO Nazis and Nukes 2, and have announced NNN3, colon, Nippon, Nukes, and Nationalists. I'm not sure how far you can take the letter N thing, but Tai Bamba's always had his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, so it's all good. Uh, there's some alternative history involved in this game, which ends up having the U.S. and Russia fight Germany and China, I, I think. Uh, if you're interested in this, uh, you can find it at ossgameskart.com. Now, I looked through the previous Wild Weasels, and I don't see that I mentioned Mrs. Thatcher's War anywhere, which is a game by R. Ben Madison about the 1982 Falcons War that is supposed to be published by White Dog Games at some point. Mr. Madison designed Don't Tread on Me, which is a solitary game about the American Revolution from White Dog, which I have mentioned, and Mound Builders, which is a solitary game about pre-Columbian civilization in Illinois from Victory Point. I assume this is going to be another solitaire game, and I wonder how it will stack up against where there is Discord, which is also about the Falklands, and just happens to be my favorite solitaire game of all time. So you can find out more at whitedoggames.com. Kevin Zucker's quadra game of Peninsular War Battles is now entitled 1809, Napoleon's Quagmire, colon, The Peninsular War, subtitled The Campaign in Extremadura. That's the western part of Spain on the central Portuguese border. It's still available for pre-order at $76 until August 31st and is scheduled for publication in February 2017. One thing I, uh, interesting thing that I noticed on Kevin's website is an introductory package called Hanau, which costs $22.50 plus shipping and includes a countersheet map and rulebook. Uh, I assume about the Battle of Hanau that occurred during Napoleon's retreat from Leipzig in 1813. Now, you still have to download the charts and tables from the OSU website, but I think this is a nice way of poking a toe into Kevin's tactical Napoleonic system without having to spring for a full-blown game. 
So check all this stuff out at napoleongames.com. Now, Worthington Publishing tends to launch all their games as Kickstarters, and there are several new ones that end up, uh, that sorry, that deal with Civil War campaigns as block games. Um, now, they're all designed to be linked together, so you can play, say, Jackson and Sheridan about the Shenandoah campaign, or Lee's Invincibles about the campaign for Gettysburg, or Grant's Gamble, which covers the 1864 Overland campaign from Culpeper, Virginia, down to North Carolina. Or you can lay all three boards out together and play the whole thing, which makes me wonder what happens in 1861 or 1865. But okay, the campaign's from 1862 to 64. It's an interesting idea. Um, I'm warming up to the Holdfast series. Uh, it's a block. Uh, series, although it has some peculiarities, and I'm keeping an open mind about this. Uh, but I'm not in on the Kickstarter, so you're on your own there. Now, over at Legion War Games, uh, Randy Lean has announced that both Target for Today and B26 Marauder have made the pre-order cut. Uh, he's also posted some information about the playtest of The Great Game, uh, which was playtested at Consum World Expo, uh, which is one I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, it looks like the next game to see daylight, though, will be Red vs. Reverse, which is a solitaire game of battle in the Boer War. I do love those Legion War Games topics. Um, you can find them at legionwargames.com. And don't forget Kim Kanger's upcoming Nemesis colon Burma 1944. That's available for pre-order there as well. Um, I do want to specifically mention one game, uh, which is the closest I'm going to probably ever come to recommending a game sight unseen and unplayed. Um, in 2009, Hexasim published a game called Liberty Roads about the campaign in France 1944, which I somehow completely missed for six years. Um, long story short, I bought it last year, played it, and freaking love it. And I am completely burned out on Western Front World War II games, so that says something. Um, so when I found out there was something coming out called Victory Roads about the campaign on the Eastern Front from the destruction of Army Group Center to the end of the war, uh, I just bought it without a further thought. Um, it has twi uh, over twice as many counters as Liberty Roads because, hey, everything was bigger on the Eastern Front. Um, a trusted friend of mine has played it solo and hardly endorses it, but really, I mean, I admit it's all hearsay until I play it and can give you my actual opinion. So, um, I I'm, But I'm going to go out on a limb here uh, to say that if you're one of those people who takes a chance on anticipated games uh, so that you're not left looking on the secondary market, um, this is one that I'd seriously look into. Hexasim is French, but they do have American distributors, and I bought my copy from Cool Stuff Inc. Uh, for $67 plus $7 shipping. Uh, you can also go to Hexasim's website. That's Hexasim, H-E-X-A-S-I-M, and the game is called Victory Roads. Um, I didn't know Conflict of Heroes had gone to Guadalcanal, uh, but they have, and the resulting game is called Conflict of Heroes, colon, Guadalcanal, colon, the Pacific, 1942. Conflict of Heroes occupies one of those weird places on my gaming spectrum. Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's a really weird place for me, not for anybody else. I'm just, this is my personal opinion. Um, it's kind of too simple for me to look forward to playing as a, as a game for the afternoon, but too complex and time-consuming to serve you know, as those one-offs before you play something else. Um, but it definitely has a following, so if you're a fan of that series, you can go to Academy Games' website at academygames.com. Um, actually, if you're a fan of the series, you already know all about this. Now, on the Italian front, uh, Europa Simulazioni, that I've, I've mentioned them before, they have another game for pre-order called Costoza, um, comma, Fields of Doom. Now, this covers two battles called Costoza, one from 1848 and the second from 1866. These are different Italian wars of independence. Um, so 
it's fields of doom, but I guess, I mean, I don't know, is that just one field or there were multiple? I don't know how many fields there were. Um, anyway, I love how these guys are focusing on Italian campaigns, and I love that they have a game called Straf Expedition 1916, period, the spring offensive against Italy. Um, when I was young, which, which I know was a long time ago, one of my first war game design projects was about the Battle of Capretto. Now, I had absolutely no idea how to research an order of battle or even draw a map. Um, and even though Capretto was in 1917, and this is about the 1916 campaign, uh, it's the first thing I thought of when I saw Strafet Expedition. I'm not sure why. Um, and for that reason, I, I think I may give it a shot. Um, if you want to do so as well, you can go to italianwars.net. And that's the news. So, for our wild weasel chatter today, I got Volko Runke and Mark Herman, uh, co-designers of the coin game Fire in the Lake, to talk about some of the changes they're considering making to the game, uh, to the rules when the game is reprinted. Now, the game is out of stock now, and it's going to be going into a second printing, and that'll be really a second edition, because I think they're going to make some changes to it. Um, They posted uh, these changes as an article about designer variants uh, on the GMT website as part of the Inside GMT blog. Now, I thought this was a very interesting development because of what it means for the idea of the game as a model. Um, Unfortunately, we had some real technical problems that bugged us the whole time, uh, all of which were from my end, by the way, not theirs. So um, there are parts of the conversation where the audio was just lost. But rather than try to get Volko and Mark to recreate the conversation again, which I feel is like uh, watching a sporting event where you already know the ending and has just about as much tension... Uh, I decided to try and put together the talk from the parts that were preserved, which was quite a bit. Um, and I'll note that the parts that were dropped just before we start uh, and those segments, and I hope you can still follow what was a pretty revealing conversation. Um, and those changes that I mentioned that are on the GMT Games page in the Inside GMT blog, I'll put a link uh, to, the, to that from the um, Wild Weasel podcast page so you can see what I'm talking about. So... The first part that dropped was actually the opening uh, in which uh, I introduced Mark and Volko, and they talked about the changes as being of two types. So there's adjustments to edge cases. So that's the models working as expected, except in the extremes, it becomes all wonky. And changes because of a change in the understanding of the model or the way that the players perceive it in, um, in the sense that they necessarily don't necessarily like it and the question was specifically about the prohibition on the u.s player airlifting arvin units during the monsoon um which had been noted that it really pissed off some players when it was done as a mechanic or a tactic to deny the arvin player coin control uh, prior to a coup phase kind of gamey there anyway uh here's mark herman yeah, so so well, first of all, I think Volko's point, you know, we, that's why we use that quote, uh, that old Dunnigan quote at the beginning of the article, um, that uh, you know games are never finished; they just get published. Mm-hmm. And I and going to Volko's point, yeah, there is a point where there is um, people figure things out. I mean, the gamers are extraordinarily smart, mm-hmm. and right. so the model. So going back to the uh, to the fire in the lake example. You know, there, like as I was saying, there are the, the real model is that the U.S. and the Arvin did things to each other that the others were not happy with because of different. You know, their objectives were close, but it's not perfect, mm-hmm. right? And so, if I want an Arvin division to show up somewhere to do something, I might be willing to sacrifice one of their their views of the world for my view of the world. And I'm the American, I'm paying for the war, so mm-hmm. I, I. And they did do it. They did in fact force things upon the Arvin mm-hmm. with a lot of yelling and screaming. Now. Mm-hmm. 
in the game, of course, one player is trying to, you know, to mess with the other, knowing their objectives to take away the game, you know, the game victory. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that just because the motivation isn't pure, that the model's wrong. I mean, that's what we intended. The model is correct right. in that case. Okay. But, but as I go back to is, it is part entertainment. I'm not looking to make people miserable, although some would argue otherwise. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, like, for instance, in Churchill, people are having certain experiences and they're saying, well, this never happened. They go, this is a historical. And first mm-hmm. of all, what I've learned is that most gamers have a very um, thin appreciation of the history in many cases. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, I just bought a book the other day, uh, just showed up, and it's about Roosevelt as a war commander. And the mm-hmm. subtitle of the book is Roosevelt's War Against Churchill. So when people tell me that Roosevelt and Churchill were getting along, this author agrees with me that it wasn't quite, you know, the bed of roses that history, you know, a, a, a college textbook on history would not tell you this. Okay. So that the model, Volko, the model that I had in my head, in some cases, uh, may exceed their tolerance for it. Okay. Uh, tolerance for it and. And again, as I say, I'm not here to make people unhappy. And so I will modify a game, you know, based on, you know, I think is if I can, if I think that a small change will enhance everybody's enjoyment by 50 percent and decrease their um, and decrease the model by 10 percent, I do it. OK, well, then then answer me this, because it's there's you have you have other you have other comments here. Like, for example, <clears throat> uh, your uh, sortie limit. Uh, an airstrike special activity may either remove pieces or degrade the trail, not both. And yeah. then you change Wild Weasel a little bit, and then you say your comment is, airstrike has struck some players, especially when playing as communist faction, as unrealistically powerful in being able to focus both on close air support in the south and logistical strikes in, in the north, Laos, Cambodia, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so it has struck some players that way. But how has it struck the designer, Mark Herman, and the other designer, Volko Runke? I mean, so... I'll let Volko go first. I've been talking, so Volko, yeah. you pick it up. Yeah, um, and to go back to, um, I just wanted to go back and answer a question you raised a little bit earlier, which was, you know, when does things t- when do things tip over? Mm-hmm. People do have to l- learn the game, and not all feedback is, is equally meritorious. Right. And so, I mean, for example, if the game is interesting anyway, it means play will go differently. Um, in, in Falling Sky, I think we're going to see a lot of Roman defeats until people learn to use them because they're hard to learn to use because okay. they got a complex machinery. In Fire in the Lake, this issue with the Arvin um, being airlifted out, that came to my consciousness at WBC tournament. I mean, it's like a national tournament in the mm-hmm. game. People have learned the game um, at that point, and they're pulling something off that the playtesters hadn't, hadn't figured mm-hmm. out um, that has certain results. And then, so so then the question of is it consistent with history or not, or is right. it you know is this the right model? Well, every every model's interpretation. Mm-hmm. You choose what to what to simplify. It's not a really a calculation in my game design style where I say, well, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, before the monsoon, you know, this or that would exactly happen. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is we're trying to interpret things to get. A, a, a plausible um, alternative course of events, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing with the airstrike question. Which way does it does it tip? I could be argued this way or that way, and what uh, what I have seen in the two years of of playing is I have seen that as people have learned to play mm-hmm. the factions, I'm seeing it be um, a little bit too easy as the U.S. Mm-hmm. If you have four people who really know what they're doing. And so you'll you'll notice that a lot of those proposed changes 
are tuning the balance among the factions mm -hmm. to not let very experienced U.S. players get away with too much. Mm -hmm. And now we say, we say accurately some players and ask for feedback because there's a lot of disagreement still mm -hmm. about which factions are hardest to play, which right. ones are favored, mm -hmm. um, whether whether or not you know this or that aspect of the U.S. is overpowered or not. And so I'm actually looking. For, there's up opportunity now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like play testing deluxe because okay. there's all these people out there mm -hmm. playing it, sure. hopefully giving feedback. And it's not like the uh, second printing is going to the presses tomorrow. Right. So we have some time to see. So I'm I'm actually not firm on any of those questions. I'm looking for more data. Well, so I mean, do you think that there should? I mean, I, okay. So I understand that the idea that you design a game and then you get all this extra feedback that you couldn't possibly have expected in the playtest, which I, that, that's perfectly reasonable to me. That you see that in, in, in computer gaming all the time. You know, they have yeah. a, a closed you know closed beta and then they open it up or the, you know the game is released and all of a sudden you know all these people find all these exploits because the people are just really really smart and yep. i get that idea so but do, would you agree or disagree that there should be an official version well, first, to well, quote the front 242 song I, i'm gonna let me give you i, I want to pick up that question this way so what, what goes back to uh, experienced players, and Volko is right in saying that we saw some of this stuff in the you know the tournament with very experienced players. So back in was it 1999, I did for the people, right? Mm -hmm. It was a slip sure game, mm -hmm. and I never forgot it. The first it was I guess it was called some it was called Avalon Con at that time when the, it was like the last. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember Avalon Con. I went to Avalon Con. It was the last game this, for the people and the the bulge. Um, uh, what's his name's bulge game were the last two games published by Avalon Hill as they sold to Hasbro. Oh, Bitter Woods, yeah, that was. Um, yeah, Bitter Woods. That's yeah. the one I was like, and it was an Hour Dens game. That's yeah. right, Bitter Woods. And the first thing that happened in the, um, you know, after the game has been out now six minutes, right? Yeah, right. Somebody took Washington with the Confederates, and oh my God, it's broken! It's right. all we have to we have to have a house rule and right, all this right, stuff. Right. And I'm like, okay, I remember this too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, everybody remembers. It. it was like a hue and cry, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> You, yeah, that can happen, but you, you know, and I wrote articles, but what I'm looking for is, does the model, goes back to Volko's thing about a model, does the model have the resilience? See, model, there are three, there are three kind of metrics. It's effectiveness, efficiency, and resilience. Okay. Teaches at Columbia. Okay. And resilience is a metric of how much can a thing take a hit and still recover from another direction. Okay. So what I always like to do is, yes, you pulled that tactic off, but was there a counter, is there a counter strategy that was not yet been revealed based on you trying that. You mm -hmm. see, so I want to see that. And so what happened with For the People is, and I have actually never changed it, over time, somebody would say the Union's advantage, and then the Confederates would come up with something, then the Confederates are advantage. And mm -hmm. so it's going back and forth now for, what is that, 17 years or okay. so. We've been going back and forth, but I never changed the game. Mm -hmm. But so, you're changing and, this one. Well, again, what we're doing is we're putting out some variants, you know, okay. and we're looking at... We're looking at to see, does that change anything? Now, what I haven't figured, see, now, when I play against a good U.S. player, mm -hmm. I, I tend to win. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, does that mean the U.S. player is better than me or worse than me? I don't know. But but just because Americans are winning, it may be that the Americans are easier to understand mm -hmm. and therefore easier to win with. And it goes back to Volko's thing. I just played Falling Sky for the second time. Mm -hmm. And the Romans are tough. In fact, when I played the first time with, with Volko, I was the Romans. I got my... I came in fourth place, a distant fourth place. Right. Uh -huh. But you didn't lose any legions. 
So that's where we had our second audio loss, but it wasn't much. It was just Mark elaborating on the point he was trying to make, which was that the model has a certain resiliency, as he put it. And just because he couldn't figure out how to use the Romans at first in Falling Sky didn't mean that the Romans themselves were broken. So here's Mark again. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, look at almost any review. Uh, I, I, well, let me just make a different point, and I'll come to this point. The first sure. point is, is that the market, in my mind, in many cases, players are looking for the game to sort of give it up on the first play. Mm-hmm. They play it. They totally they want to grok it immediately. Right. And then if they don't get it immediately, they start. They, the term I've heard used a lot, they'll say it's like a real brain burner. Or I didn't know what to do. Which is insane I... to me, by the way. I mean, what, you're playing a freaking game that has 48 pages of rules, and you're worried about that it's too, you know, I, I, yeah. that stuff I, I just that's... don't get. Yeah, but but again, going back to Volko's point, the coin series is a phenomenal, like, I love the coin series. Mm-hmm. And I obviously was very happy to do a game with Volko in the coin series. And when we did Vietnam, I mean, you know, like, so for instance, when when somebody's, you know, like the, let's talk about air power. You know, I will tell you from a, I, I, I'm going to tell a quick story, but I used to work for this Air Force colonel, and on his desk were two things that are of note. One was a um, really nice-looking model of an F-4 that he had gotten painted in the Philippines. It was an exact replica of his plane that he flew in Vietnam. Okay. Next to that picture was a framed picture of a, I guess I'm assuming it's an NVA truck that was on its side with a bomb hole near it, and he said, that is the I bombed the trail, he said, hundreds of times. That's the only time I'm sure I got one truck. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, how effective was American air power? And I read, I got to tell you, a great book to read is John Prados's uh, Blood Trail. I have it. I read it. It's good. It is a phenomenal book. And the reality is, is that the bombing campaign really slowed down the NVA. If, if the NVA don't have a lot of air power dropping on them, they're just going to overwhelm, you know, they'll win too easily. You know, it's the counterbalance to the NVA is the American air power. Um, that's just the reality of the war. And it's, and getting absolute statistics. Now, if you don't play the NVA well, uh, or, you know, I think the bigger problem is the sweep, you know, all of a sudden sees a lot of VC and all of a sudden the air power wrecks them. You know, so there is sort of a set of good tactics. And so the counter tactics are around dispersal. Don't put a lot of guys, you know, in one place, and so they can't sweep you really easily without, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you have to have counterattacks. So I think the model in Fire in the Lake and the coin system model really is what we're talking about has um, resilience to the tactic. However, I go back to there's been enough feedback where people think it's it's overpowered. I don't know that I agree, and I don't know that I disagree, but the variant is there to say, okay, does this start to make you enjoy the game? Does this feel better or not or whatever? And if over time I, we, we see from feedback that players are enjoying the game more and the Americans are not dominating because, you know, some of the harder tactics aren't that obvious or whatever, I'm good with changing it. But I'm not sure yet that people have really tested the resilience of the model. And, again, I, I have the experience of For the People and Empire of the Sun and every other game. Even with my current Pericles game, you know, mm-hmm. and so again, it, it's it's a real judgment call. But I think that you know the model is resilient enough. But until I feel that the resilience of the model has been really pressed, and they've tried certain kinds of tactics, I'm not I'm not one to quickly change something because it creates a lot of disruption, you know, amongst the gamers. You know, people go, but there needs to be an official version. I do agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So if I can address that that question, yes, um, you know, does yeah, should there be an official version? I sort of have a two-part answer to that. Uh, an official version is useful, 
um, but it should not be religion. And as, as Mark just noted, there's a cost when you modify, and it can bring in confusion, and it's useful to, uh, at the beginning of the conversation about, hey, do you want to play this game, to, to know what, what that game is, and then diverge from there. And a wonderful thing about our hobby is it is r very easy with a pencil or less than that, a conversation to diverge. Uh, much more so than than with with electronic games, and uh, I will just give you my kind of perspective on the, the the joy of that. That is the joy of of yourself modifying a board game or or war game that you're playing. Mm -hmm. Unlike Mark, I did not start designing games in elementary school and publish them as a teenager. Um, I actually played um, war games for about ten years with the idea that 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 it was religion mm -hmm. that is that the designers were so smart mm -hmm. and they knew the history mm -hmm. and whatever it it says there that's the way it's intended to be and i know the exact moment and where i was on the planet when that <laughs> broke okay um, when was that it was when i was uh, well it was on a trip to um the market garden battlefields uh -huh. and i had in my mind i was a religious uh, squad leader player mm -hmm. You know, board eight and this, the Nijmegen scenario, and there's this castle up on the cliff, and you put your 88 in the castle, and it guards the bridge against the British fireflies coming across. And I wanted to see that castle. Yeah. There are no um, cliffs on the rivers <laughs> in Holland anywhere. There's no – It's. I mean and – I, and I thought, well, why didn't they just use board seven, which is this kind of swampy, marshy, flat river? Why did they use board eight? And, and it has a big impact on the scenario that right. you can put the – you know, you have to go knock out this 88 in the castle, and I realized that um, it wasn't religion; that it was it was a it was flawed. Why? Well, it's a model. I mean, there's just things in it that are done for whatever reason they're done for. So that I spent then about 15 years after that in a different mode, which was I tinkered with games. Mm -hmm. I got a game, and almost no war game that I played did I play rules as written because I always found something where I was like, well, this would be better this way, or this would be better that way. And and I was and I was modifying them. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the next step was well, I can actually design from scratch a whole game, and it'll be maybe better, at least to my taste, than anything that's out there on the same topic. So that's a progression. And but it was a, it was a slow progression for me, and a, and, a, and a delightful one. And so so here's the thing. Um, yes, of the the designers need to tell you what is the recommended mode. Right. You know, here is the rule book, but within the rule books published are options. And I have never had anybody complain to me, oh, gee, you put this optional rule in there. I hate that because now I don't know what the official version is. Right. No, we're telling you, okay, we're recommending without the option if you want to go this way or with the option if you want a little bit more spice or whatever. Um, but if you want to play the official official version and not have the conversation about what options to use, then don't use any options. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, and so I think and, – and, and um, maybe we can sort of wrap up on this last point, which is that I, I feel that you had mentioned squad leader. Um, advanced squad leader, in every scenario, there's a balance. You know, there's a German balance or a, you know, Axis balance, whoever the Axis side is, and there's an allied balance, right? And so yeah. if you have, and it tells you, you know, if you want to change this, now that's specifically for balance reasons. Like, you know, it's, it's not because the, they, the, you're changing the, uh, order of battle because you think this is more historical. It's because no, this other otherwise the other guy's going to lose or you're going to yeah. lose. But I, I think that there's there's a difference, and I and I I appreciate games that say, okay, here's how the game plays. This is what we as designers feel is the model that we endorse. 
Okay. But if you like a more freewheeling game, then here's this. And that's where we had our third audio failure, although it was actually pretty brief. Um, this was still Mark uh, addressing the point I had just made, which was about the very idea of an official version and the attendant balance issues. So, so you said you were saying you're from the um, from the SBI, older you're from the SBI school. And and so for a great example, have you ever played the game of France 1940, which was yeah. originally published by my, my first war game. All right, Avalon so, okay, Hill. So, yeah, that was. So that. you play the historical scenario, you know, the way Jim Dunnigan set it up. The Germans use uh, each side has twelve variants of their order of battle, and the Germans, I believe, they use number two for the historical, and the French yep. for eleven. And eleven, yep. and eleven is just a slightly the historical is just slightly better than worse than that. But mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're nowhere near one, and the Germans have just one step up; they can go from there. And so, when you play the historical, it's on it's naturally unbalanced, and that is a certain kind of gaming experience that where you're looking at the history now. What's also happened is, and some people say it was when card-driven games kind of came in, but competitive play came seemed to come back through the internet and mm -hmm. certain kinds of servers and all that. So games became, competition became a bigger deal than it was back then, and so now balance became a bigger issue right. where they wanted the official version, and I, I go back to your original question, that the official version is balanced. Now, I will tell you that that you know, because humans are so different, it is a relative balance, mm -hmm. right? The only way to know how balanced something is is I play somebody with one side. You know, after we both know how to play, uh -huh. I play. You know, you know, if I play with four guys, a fire in the lake, and we rotate for a while, which faction we play, and we uh -huh. keep track of how do I do? You know, like almost like in, in contract bridge, how do I do with each side over time and relative to the other players? Is the only way to know if as a group we're balanced. Mm -hmm. But I would contend that Fire in the Lake out of the box is balanced because I've played it so many times. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's balanced for every single group. And I think that what the optional rules do is, you know, for whatever reason, you always some guy likes to always play the Americans and he's always winning. Well, here's something to kind of, you know, give the NDA back something mm -hmm. in that particular context. But I don't okay. know that the model is what the issue is. It's just very hard to calibrate humans. And that's probably the bigger issue when I say to you, like in Churchill, they need to play better is because I'm looking at bad play. I don't know what else to do with that. You know, right. it's like Right. Okay. Well that's fair enough. Well okay that's well so that was very helpful. Um, I'm gonna end it there. Um, but uh, thanks for for giving me some insight into uh, why you guys uh, reevaluated this stuff and um, it, I, I take it this is there's gonna be some decision made for the second printing as to what is actually changed for real and what has changed as a as an optional rule. Or, I mean, Volk, I'll let you answer this one. Uh, but that is actually right. I mean, these are decisions we haven't made yet, and we have the time. And those are that's the range of options. Ch change nothing, um, switch out options. In the reprints of earlier coin series, we switched out some options. There are pe options people weren't using, and we put in other ones that had been come up, you know, that had been invented later. And or maybe it's even a, a core change to the rules. But that, yeah, those decisions are still ahead of us, and we'll use the time available to gather the data we can. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, for letting me in on it, guys. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk. And we'll thanks, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye bye. Bye, Volker. I was looking at some old and new games today, uh, which I'll be upfront and admit is one way I relax on days off. <laughs>
I don't necessarily play the games or even set them up, but I just go through them and look at the maps, the counters, the rules, and see how everything is presented. One reason is the fond memories I have of playing many of the games, even if some of these memories, and obviously the games, are over 30 years old. But another reason I do this is to engage with how the history is presented. I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of the attraction of historical wargaming is presenting military history in a way that I can interact with more than I can with a book or a film. And for lack of a better way of putting it, this builds a kind of imaginative space where you can engage the subject of your choice. There's a fair bit of space created by these counters, rules, even play aids that we've developed to enable our fascination with gaming history over the years. And the history of war games is, I think, not just the history of how game mechanics have evolved to be much more elegant now these days, but really how components have evolved uh, based on the availability of technology. Now, Mark Herman told me a very interesting story in an interview um, about how Magic the Gathering pretty much single-handedly allowed for the development of the card-driven game mechanic uh, because it became so popular in the U.S. that the company that made the cards, um, the name of which I forget, but which was based uh, in in Europe, and they were basically the default manufacturer of high-quality poker, bridge, and blackjack cards, you know, for commercial use as well. Um, they built an entirely new factory in the U.S. just to be able to better service their magic business. They were getting so many orders. And this obviously made card production much cheaper for other games as well. I mean, you can imagine the old days, if you remember, like Stratomatic Baseball had those terrible perforated cards that you sort of had to tear apart. They were like on cardstock. They weren't really even cards at all. Um... And then all of a sudden we had Magic the Gathering, and then we had card driven gameplay. That's not a coincidence. Um, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that the quality of components for games is much higher now than it was in 1975, 1985, 1995, or even 2005. Uh, just compare my original edition of Twilight Struggle to the copy of Washington's War I just played. Better map, better cards, better counters, at least from a physical perspective. But what I'm really interested in isn't so much component quality. I mean, that's a trivial observation, right? But graphic design and art direction. Because even with the availability of better printing technology, you still have to make something that works well and looks nice. And that's what art directors do, right? And it's, it's a bit surprising to me that while component quality has uniformly advanced, graphic design hasn't advanced nearly as much, or at least it hasn't in my experience. Um, the place I think this is most obvious uh, is in the design, again, not the physical quality, of maps. After all, maps are the things that we're looking at all the time when we play a game, and they have to be both functional and visually compelling. Uh, they're the things that really open up that imaginative space uh, so we can step in, right? So I was looking back through some old game maps, and I realized that a lot of old games actually had some pretty great maps, uh, even some Fairly anonymous SPI games had what I would consider to be outstanding map design. Uh, for example, Kharkov uh, from 1978 is a game I don't remember as being particularly outstanding from any gameplay point of view. It just used like the Panzer Group Guderian untried units thing and whatever. The terrain uh, the map depicts isn't very interesting in itself. But the resulting product is extremely clean and attractive. The, you know, the colors, the fonts, the symbols, and the layout work, um, they work in a way that I, I find hard to explain. Maybe it's just because it's, you know, to my taste, but I consider this to be an excellent example of art direction. Um, look at Eric Goldberg's Kursk, which is a better-known game with a busier map, but it still works extremely well, and it takes me right to the Kursk battlefield. And I suspect that the reason so many of these old games look so good is that they were all graphically designed by Redmond Simonson. 
Now, Redmond Simonson died over 10 years ago, uh, and I never met him, for which I'm profoundly sad, uh, but those who knew him all tell me that he was a genius when it came to, when it came to graphics, uh, graphics, art, and design. He certainly established a certain look for wargaming that persists today, and we all read a huge debt when it comes to our hobby being so captivating for us. Um, and another reason I think there are so many good-looking older games is that Roger McGowan has been doing wargame graphic design since the 1970s. Um, Flattop, oddly, is a great example of presentation from that time in a game that doesn't have a lot to reel you in from a visual perspective. Uh, but it's very clean, the box is, uh, art is effective and arresting, and for some reason it doesn't feel sterile like some of the other Pacific Carrier Battle games um, do that I found. Um, Roger is obviously still very much involved in the hobby, now with his own studio running uh, C3i Magazine. But he's been around a long time, and we have a long history of Roger's work to admire. Um, someone I don't think has gotten enough credit until recently is Roger's colleague at GMT, Mark Simonich. Uh, Mark produced one of my favorite game packages of all time called The Legend Begins, about the North, North African campaign in 1941. Um, I frankly was stunned when I ordered, uh, you know, just some Ziploc game from an advertisement in Fire and Movement magazine in like 1991 or 1992 and got this amazing package of maps, charts, and counters that I still pull out and admire on a regular basis, uh, even if I no longer play the game. Um, the map is still my standard for North Africa maps. Uh, but more than that, the layout of the rules and the charts, the appearance of the counters, pretty much everything about the game from a physical perspective is evidence of an extremely talented graphic designer showcasing his skills. Um, Mark's map for Campaign to Stalingrad, uh, which was his second game, covers basically the same territory as SBI's Drive on Stalingrad, but uh, when you lay it down next to the TSR version of that game, um, just side by side, you know, Mark's map just looks so much better. It's hard to explain why, and the rest of the game looks better, too. Um, for me, Mark is kind of the synthesis of Red and Rogers. I think his designs have evidence of both. And an example of that is, uh, I think, I love the functionality and the artistry of the U.S. Civil War map, which is a kind of a restrained uh, example of, um, of war game uh, map design uh, that I mentioned in a previous podcast. But it, it works on so many levels. Now, one advantage I think art designers have now is that there are more area movement games. Um, now than there were in the past. Um, now, you know, area movement games present their own challenges, but they do liberate artists from that, you know, tyranny of the hex grid. Um, even back in the 1980s, though, there were some nice hexless map designs like Storm Over Arnhem. Um, and even the Empires in Arms map, although the color scheme is strange at first, you know, it, after playing it, it turns out to be very effective at being something easy to look at and use over a period of many months, which is how long you're going to end up playing that thing if you stick to it. Um, so Charles Kibler, Dale Schaefer, Tony Parrish all did excellent work on these uh, Avalon Hill products, and I think it's important to remember the contributions of these people um, who really made our hobby look as good as it does now. So that brings me to more recent work, uh, specifically Liberty Roads, which I mentioned in the news section. Now, I don't know who was responsible for the map specifically, as the credited artists are uh, Christophe uh, Gentil-Paré and designer Yves Le Calec. Um, but I haven't seen such a unique and distinctly, distinctively new-looking map in years. Um, I think this has to be one of my favorite game maps of all time, joining The Legend Begins and U.S. Civil War. Just the color and font combination, as well as the choice of symbols, which are not uh, completely standard, makes it, you know, creates a sense of place that's way beyond just the hex grid for a game. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm also a big fan of King Conger's work uh, in Dien Bien Phu, The Final Gamble, where Kim has... 
uh, produced a map encounters that give you a feeling almost of reenactment, and he captures the peculiar location and the individuality of the units perfectly. Um, remember, it's this whole presentation that constitutes art design, and the choice of different poses and color schemes for different battalions um, really makes them stand out and, and draws your attention to each piece, which is what you need to do specifically for that situation, which Kim uh, obviously knew kind of intuitively. Um, and I even noticed this in a recent game uh, in Against the Odds magazine that arrived last week, which is uh, Paul Rohrbaugh's No Middle Ground, colon, Golan 73. Uh, the thing that struck me there was the choice of font for numbers, uh, which has a distinctively, uh, or distinctly, I guess I should say, European rather than American look, but with the cross sevens and the open fours. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that can make a game evoke a situation without really being very noticeable. Um, I, I love this kind of attention to graphic detail, um, but I guess it's all in a day's work for good graphic designers. So what about examples of bad graphic design? Um, well, a recent Twitter exchange remind me, reminded me of the uh, old Bar Lev from Conflict Games and that's uh, the Day Glow Orange map. Oh boy, I wonder who made that decision. And uh, No Trumpets, No Drums is famous for being an excellent game that is also fantastically ugly. Um, those are some examples of bad graphic design, and I guess if you don't know what's bad, you can't appreciate what's good, right? So those are my thoughts. Um, I'd love to hear yours in the comment section, or you can tweet at Space Rumsfeld. And that's it for this time. My copy of MBT just showed up this afternoon as I was recording this last segment, so you know what I'll be doing this evening. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Wargaming news, Wargaming people, and Wargaming views. This has been Wild Weasel, number six.